Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Sex, Psychics and Psychedelics, Discovering Inner Liberation. My name is Banana Jane Garnett. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, a lover of freedom and a relentless explorer of the mind. Please come join me on my journey in hot pursuit of inner illumination and liberation. For more about me, you can find me at the Banana Jane on Instagram. Now let's dive in. My next guest is Cam Fraser, Australia's leading men's sex coach. To say I've got a lot to talk to him about is an understatement. Oh boy, do I have a lot of questions. Get ready, Cam, and welcome. Cam, thank you so much for coming on Sex Psychics and Psychedelics. Uh, yeah, no, I appreciate you you inviting me on. I'm, I'm super excited. Good, good. Me too. And, uh, you know, apart from seeing what you're doing on Instagram and that you're, you know, talking very candidly about sex and knowing that you are a, a leading sex coach, I, I really don't know much about you. So I consider this very much a discovery call and um, excited to, to reach you across the planet. Okay, let's start off with how does one become a sex coach? How did you become a sex coach for men? Right. Well, my, my, my personal journey, I suppose, started when I was actually in America. I left Australia to go and study psychology and to be a student athlete in America at an American university. And the, the university I went to was actually in Georgia of all places. So the, the deep South, it was in rural Georgia as well. And it was very Christian conservative. So I had this light bulb moment. Uh, the first light bulb moment for me anyway, was seeing the shame and the guilt and the suppression and the repression of sexuality and sexual expression in this town, this community that I was in. Did you come from a liberal background? I'm not sure if you would call it liberal. I went to an English grammar school. I was from in the southwest of Western Australia, which is pretty relaxed and easygoing. Yeah, I was just a, I was just like a teenage Australian kind of larrikin. I used to drink quite a lot as well. So it was just a, I was just a um, young party guy. Bit of a lad. I suppose. Yeah, a bit of a lad. Yeah, I suppose so. And I, so I didn't fit in with that community at all. And, you know, I was studying psychology at the time and I took a, um, I took a class called Christian Approaches to Sexuality. It was just your, your stereotypical, you know, no sex before marriage and homosexuality is a sin and all this other um, really wow. dogmatic uh, beliefs around sexuality and sexual expression. Uh, so that was the first kind of light bulb moment for me. And I was like, oh, there's something here that I really disagree with and I would like to pursue this a bit more. So I ended up you know, getting a degree in psychology, my undergrad degree, but I was also personally experiencing a lot of inner turmoil with regards to my masculinity and sexuality. And a lot of my work today is informed by that period of my life. Uh, I was experiencing premature ejaculation. I was experiencing erectile dysfunction. I was watching a lot of porn. I was really struggling to connect intimately with the young women that I was being sexual with. And I you know, felt like I was performing my masculinity. I felt like I was wearing this mask and trying to fit in with these quote unquote alpha male jock kind of machismo locker room way of talking about sex and women and 
um, just framing our interactions in a certain way. And, and so that, that was causing me a lot of anxiety. Another big light bulb moment for me, another big transformative moment for me was I seriously injured my lower back, I actually fractured my spine. And through clinical rehabilitation, I was introduced to Pilates and to yoga and to meditation and to spirituality and to Tantra, both classical and, and new age. And for the first time in my life, I actually started listening to how I was feeling, like physically feeling in my body. And um, all these emotions started coming through. I started releasing tension and trauma that I was holding onto and all this emotion that I'd been repressing for a long time because I was you know, trying to be a man um, started pouring out. I started crying halfway through Pilates classes. I started getting really angry during yoga because I couldn't hold a pose because my back was sore. And so I was like, what, what the fuck's going on? Uh, so I went and saw a counselor and they put me in touch with a psychologist and I started just learning emotional regulation tools. And, um, and I started deconstructing my narratives around sexuality and masculinity, what it meant to be a man and what it meant to be a sexual man. And because of doing that work, not only physically with the yoga and Pilates, but also kind of emotionally and, and conceptually with the counselor and psychologist, I was, I just developed more self-confidence. I, I was more self-assured. You know, I, I knew myself more um, and, my, and I knew my, my authentic self, not this mask that I was wearing to try and fit in with the, with the boys, with the fellas. And so I, I started standing up for myself. Uh, I started standing up for, for other people. I started speaking out against the guys in the locker room when they said some misogynistic shit. I noticed that I was having better sex. I was less stressed. I was less tense in my body. So I wasn't experiencing the premature ejaculation and the erectile dysfunction. I was more confident. So I, I started asking the young women I was with, what do you like? What are you into? Like what, what gives you pleasure? And started opening up those conversations. I bet they were thrilled, weren't they? Yeah, it changed. Yeah, it definitely changed the the dynamic, and and it, and uh, you know we we started to start mm. focusing on pleasure rather than on performance. Right, that was mm. that was the big mm -hmm. thing. And I I yeah, I used to use drinking as a scapegoat, and I I stopped drinking as well. So that ended up being really helpful, and um, so that was like a big personal transformation for me. And and so those two big things, like experiencing the community of people that needed sex ed and, and sex coaching and sex therapy, and then also experiencing like this big personal shift myself, I was like, okay, here's, you know, here's these two big invitations for me to pursue this, uh, both kind of personally and, and professionally. And so I just, over the course of a couple of years, um, ended up you know, getting a postgraduate degree in sexology, did my yoga teacher training and tried to blend these esoteric teachings from the spiritual kind of tr traditions with the more academically and scientifically validated areas of study and, and try to bring those two things together. And I wanted to speak into things that I have an authority over, which is my own lived experience, which is as a cishet white dude. So that's the content that I put out into the world. And they're the people that I work with the most is people that share my lived experience and that are kind of the same demographic as me. Um, hence men's sex coach. Um, so that's in a nutshell, essentially how I got to be where I am today. So I imagine you had luck with the guys in the locker room. I mean, I was just wondering, how did you kind of crack through that veneer? Because it's quite a heavy veneer, isn't it? When the pack has some kind of contract around how this, how this talk goes down. Well, I, I mean, I lost a lot of friends, to be totally honest with you. Like I, um, I started talking more openly about sex and sexuality and, and, you know, what I was feeling. And there was guys that didn't want to hear it, you know? And so people who I really considered very good friends, my, you know, my mates, I lost contact with and they didn't want to have anything to do with me. And, you know, it was, it was tough because I'd known these guys for several years and they didn't want to go down that path with me. And, and I recognize now that they probably weren't ready at that time um, at the same time that I was. And what's interesting now is like 
five to 10 years later, several of these guys who really kind of disowned me at that part of my life have now started to reach out. They've actually been following me online for like the last 10 years and send me a message and say, Hey, I've been, I've been following you and I actually, you know, don't know who else to talk to. I want, I need some advice. Can you help? So to be honest with you, I don't know if I really did pierce that armor during that period of my life. Um, I was just kind of doing my own thing and doing my best not to worry about what other guys thought. And I was still impacted and affected by that, but um, it got easier as time went by and and my, my friendship group shifted. Right. And now I'm, uh, I'm a new dad now and I've got like a a bunch of like really amazing um, men in my life who are really supportive, who share my values who don't um, discourage me from pursuing certain things. Yeah, I, I like this reframe. You didn't pierce their armor. You just took off your own armor and you found a place where it was safe to be unarmored. Totally. Or you, you created your own safe space and now other people are seeing that as an alternative. I do feel like we're in the middle of so many different changes right now in terms of how people are understanding, well, everything, including sexuality. And it seems to me like we've got kind of sexual regression and sexual progression kind of co-occurring. What do you feel about the the bigger movements of what's happening in, in sexuality across the board? Yeah, I totally agree with you. There's like a friend of mine, he... he he's like an amateur philosopher, I suppose you would call him, but he likes to to say that the more light there is in the world, like the more that we explore progression, I suppose, and more we move forward simultaneously, the more dark we're going to see in the world and the more, you know, and it's this classic kind of um, yin yang, good, evil type of scenario where the more of one there is, the, the more polarizing and the more we're going to see of the other. So um, I, I often think back to that when I, I considered what you've just um, asked me, but there's another kind of analogy here, which I, I wish I could credit the person who came up with this, but it's essentially the wall analogy where we've built this little wall around and say, uh, you know, a hundred years ago, only a, a certain amount of sexual expression was tolerated within that wall. And over the course of the century, we've kind of shifted that wall a little bit further out and we've allowed more things into that, uh, into that space. Right. And, and as we go forward, hopefully we're going to continue moving that wall out so that more things are, are accepted and tolerated and, and, um, you know, kind of encouraged and celebrated within, within the walls. Right. Um, and so I definitely see that, that happening. There is obviously resistance to it. And similarly, like the more, the more we, we ask for progress, the, the, the stronger the resistance is going to be, I feel. So it's, it's daunting and it's tough. Right. And especially like when we think of systemic things as well, like I often feel really overwhelmed by systemic issues with regards to like sexuality, particularly, but my kind of philosophy, I suppose, is working at the microcosmic level. So if I can work with one guy who changes his relationship with himself, that then changes his relationship with his partner, which changes his relationship with his family, which hopefully then changes his relationship with his community. We get enough people doing that within, you know, community, then that'll change their relationship with society, which will change the relationship with the broader systems of society. So that's my belief is that if I can work with people at an individual level, that it'll have a ripple out effect onto the way that we see the world, I suppose. Absolutely. I'm with you on that. I'm curious about what a kind of a typical day looks like in the in the life of a, a sex coach. What are the what are the problems coming your way? What are the questions that that keep popping up from your clients? Uh, so some very common questions. Some, something that I field on a day to day basis is 
how do I make my penis bigger? Is watching porn healthy? How do I last longer in the bedroom? Those are the three major ones. I, on a day-to-day, day-to-day basis, I get asked those questions every single day. Really? I, I'm just I'm just surprised that grown-up men are asking you that. I mean, maybe there's stuff I don't know, but isn't that just like you you get what you get and you try not to be upset when it comes to your penis size? I mean, that's essentially what you want to go for. I'll share some, some, some statistics. There is about 70% of men who are dissatisfied with the size of their penis. And of those 70% of men, about 99% of them want their penis to be bigger. And there's a lot of you know, reasons behind this dissatisfaction and this desire to be bigger, this you know, bigger is better mentality. But the approach that I usually take is, yeah, firstly, normalizing, like normalizing penis size and uh, shape as well. I get some questions about shape and talking about pleasure over performance. A lot of it is uh, performance-based. They want a bigger penis because that means it's going to be better uh, in terms of like how much pleasure they can give their partner. So I talk about how pleasure actually works for a lot of heterosexual women. And then if they're really concerned with you know, penis size and it's typically erect penis size as well. Then I talk to them about maybe cock rings or penis pumps, or if they really, really want to go down that route, then I talk Mm -hmm. to them about joking and some other kind of penis enlargement exercises that they may be interested in doing. Wait, what was that? Joking? Yeah. So joking is like a, like essentially it's like a penis stretching routine that you do. It's not something I, I teach a lot. In fact, I very, very rarely teach it. Because it is, I mean, it's quite dangerous. Essentially, um, is the, the the reason, and I don't think a lot of men should be doing it or really need to do it. But there's a there's a, a good community of of men online and these kind of anonymous forums that are talking about it. So, yeah, it's it's essentially just like normalizing is is the big. I mean, that's essentially what ninety nine percent of my work is is just like normalizing people that people mm. and, and men just want to know that they're okay and that they're normal and that and that you know what they're doing is is not weird essentially. So, um, so I talk to them about, about what can be expected because we've got all these expectations about what sex should look like. And we've got a lack of sex education, especially like sex positive, pleasure positive sex education. So a lot of people kind of think something's wrong with them when really what they're having is a really normal, common experience. And there's just a couple of things that they can do to improve it. How much do you think porn is affecting the landscape? Yeah, so I think uh, porn has a lot to answer for, but I also think like mainstream media in general, which is like movies, TV shows, books, uh, and I include porn in that as well. Porn is a, a mainstream media, mainstream porn. I think uh, affect the scripts and the narratives that we have around sex and sexuality. Things that porn specifically could be more contributing to is stuff like penis size anxiety because the average male porn star yeah. penis is about three inches bigger than the average civilian's penis. So we're getting this really skewed representation of bodies uh, and penises in, in porn, considering we don't really have an opportunity to see penises in the wild, right, in general on a, on a you know, yeah, public day-to-day yeah. basis. So I think that that's definitely where it's contributing a lot. Um, and then also like in terms of like the way we have sex as well, I often frame sex as a skill, right? You're you kind of, it's kind of like swimming, right? You're, you're born with some sort of innate ability to swim. You kind of thrash around and try to keep yourself above, you know, your head above water. Similar to sex, we kind of intuitively kind of know what sex is and, and like how to do it. 
but we've we still got to learn. We still got to learn how to swim and we still got to learn how to have sex. And watching porn is like learning how to swim by watching a video of someone swimming and only swimming in a particular way, right? So, you know, learning how to have sex by watching porn is essentially doing that. We're, we're watching people yeah. have sex, but we're watching them have sex in a particular way. And also it's for or they're entertainment. Just, yeah, they're just like doing the butterfly stroke or something like yeah, that. Right. You and know, they're just doing the most splashy stroke. <laughs> that's it. They're, they're, and they're putting um, it on. They're, they're, that would actually exhaust a normal mortal, right, you know. Right. Um, yeah, that's a good analogy. I like that. And, and the, I mean, there's a lot more to it, but I think that's those are the, my, my major issues with that kind of mainstream pornography. What about the the fact that there's this kind of shortcut to a very high level of stimulation? I think that's something that concerns me. I think it puts pressure to make situations as sort of real life situations as sort of exciting. <laughs> As, as amped up as porn situations. And yeah, I just think that's a really kind of false logic. Yeah, and I agree with that. And, and the way that I talk, because it's impossible really to talk about male sexuality and men's experiences of, of sex without talking about porn. Um, yeah. And so one of the ways that I, I work with my clients um, is, you know, I don't demonize their porn usage. I don't tell them that they're bad and that they're, you know, that, that watching, because I'm not, I'm not anti-porn, but I'm also not pro-porn. Yeah. I, I think that I think there there is some porn, you know, ethical, educational, diverse, inclusive porn that can be really used as a tool and can be really used to expand eroticism. Because as you perfectly identified, it does offer this intense stimulation, right? It can offer this uh, build-up of arousal, this quite quick build-up of arousal. But we could use that as a tool to explore our eroticism, right? So the way that yeah. I I explain porn usage to guys, the guys that I'm working with is instead of just sitting down at a computer screen, hunched over with a mouse in one hand and a cock in the other, and just Mm. furiously masturbating like a little chimpanzee going through the motions and being like really tuned out. What if you can put your computer screen or your phone up on a shelf, stand up, breathe, open your body up, touch the rest of your body Mm. and, you know, and, and watch porn for a couple of minutes to get that buildup of arousal, but then turn away from the porn and maybe even look in a mirror mm. and use that buildup of arousal to your advantage and explore it and expand it. And if you feel that arousal kind of starting to dip a little bit and, and go below your kind of threshold for feeling turned on, turn back to the porn yeah. for a couple of minutes and build it back up and then move away from it. And again, consciously kind of intentionally and mindfully using porn that ethical porn as a tool to explore your eroticism and then do something with it. Mm. Porn's very um, oral as well. It's very auditory. So you could plug headphones in and not look at something, but listen to pornography and use that as a new way of creating pleasure pathways in your body, which is what I'm, I'm big about is creating like new ways of experiencing pleasure to really diversify your, your experience. I love this. Yeah, this is great. This is great. I mean, this is a really beautiful reframe and quite a radical reframe because you're using uh, porn as a tool for waking up and increasing sensation or um, I guess connected sensation as opposed to this sort of numbing out function that it has. I think that it's good to look at that too, though, as well, which is, you know, the part that wants the addicted part, right? The part that wants to just be soothed that does want to check out that perhaps feels overwhelmed by, I don't know, you name it, being a human. Yeah. You know, I think that we pathologize numbing 
and waking up seems to be a a more um, beautiful and exciting path than numbing out. But I think it's kind of understandable as well, don't you? Yeah, totally. I mean, and we do that with all media, you know, like we'll watch Netflix for hours on hours, but no one really has much of a, you know, negative thing to say about that so much as like maybe watching porn for 20 minutes, you know what I mean? So I think that's a conversation with regards to numbing out with using media in general. Yeah, I agree. I think porn gets demonized because it's such a, such a hot intersection, right? Of so many, there are so many different issues around porn to to look at. All right. I'm going to switch up. What is the deal with dick pics? Why? I mean, you said there, you know, there aren't, normal pictures of dicks out there, but they seem to be entering all the, all the girls' phones and probably all the boys' phones. I know this because I have two daughters and they're like, they get them all the time. It's like, what's that about? Yeah. So this is quite interesting. This is a, um, so we're talking about unsolicited dick pics here, I I suppose. I did a TED talk on this with regards to um, sexting and using technology to like express ourselves sexually, which is something we've been doing for generations, right? We, uh, I use James Joyce and his dirty letters with his partner, Nora, uh, as, you know, as an example of us using the technology that we had, which was letter writing back in James Joyce's days to uh, share our sexuality and our eroticism and our desires and, you know, our explicit sexual natures with one another. And just as technology has progressed, we, we're still doing that. Uh, we just, we're doing it in, in new and, and different ways. Um, so I think that's part of it, right? Is we've always kind of been doing this. I don't think it's new. We just have the technology to to do it now. But in terms of like the unsolicited nature of of dick pics, like there's a couple of interesting studies on this and and the the psychology behind the men that are sending stuff like this. And there's a few reasons that that they kind of categorized into a few reasons. The first is like desire to like to get something back, essentially, like there's the, if I send something out, then, then right. I, Trading I might economy. get something back. And yeah. It, yeah. And it's, and it's kind of like hoping for that, um, uh, that reciprocal response and kind of behind that is like the casting a wide net approach as well. Guys will just send out the dick pics kind of willy nilly you know, yeah. casting this wide net at large. Yeah. And just hoping that if they send it to a hundred random people that they'll get one back essentially. So there's that uh-huh. kind of like, playing the, um, the larger game. Then there's like the guys who are, um, a little bit more interested in uh, almost like they, they kind of get off on the exhibitionism of it as well. There's the the sexual gratification of, um, you know, of exhibitionism. And then there's other guys that are are more interested in like the feeling of power that it gives over, Mm. you know, the, the person who they're sending the unsolicited picture to, they kind of know, that they're crossing a boundary. They know that this has a per- other person hasn't consented to that. And so there's this kind of, sometimes it's anonymous as well. So there's like this anonymous kind of power dynamic. I mean, that makes sense with the teenagers. I just feel like at a certain point, it just seems like a really ineffective strategy if you want to turn a woman on. Certainly, I have never met a woman who's said, oh my God, it was just so hot that I got this yeah. unsolicited zip pic in my phone. So yeah, that's made me curious about it. I'm like, well, it doesn't seem to be an effective strategy for starting off a flirtation or getting laid, but I guess it is an effective strategy for engaging in the feeling of exhibitionism or taboo. Totally. And I mean, something to be really mindful of with teenagers in particular, or people under the age of legal consent, is that that's 
child pornography, you know, like if, if they're sending those photos out, then that's distribution, a distribution, sorry, of child porn. And if, if you've got a, a picture on your phone of someone's dick pic, then you're in possession of child porn as well. So something to be really, really mindful of and careful of with regards to teenagers as well. Mm, that's, that's good information. I hadn't even thought about it like that. Of course, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so what do you think men need help with the most and how can their lovers help them best? Yeah, this is, um, I mean, it's a simple but also very nuanced question to answer. And the, the reason why is because men need help the most with their performance, their performance mindset around sex. They're oriented towards like how long they last, how big their penis is, how many orgasms their partner had, like it's all the the way that they consider sex to be successful is all based on these performative aspects, right? Um, and it's yeah. all like measurements is how they measure up compared to other men. Uh, so that it's really, it gets competitive. Like a perform, like performance is, is competitive. Like you want to you outperform other men. And what happens then is this creates firstly a lot of anxiety for, for a lot of men because they're worried that they're not going to be able to perform or, or outperform you know, someone else or, or whatever it is. But it also creates a lot of disconnection between them and their partner. And hopefully this will resonate with women that are listening. A lot of guys don't focus on their pleasure. A lot of guys focus on their own gratification, which is different. Pleasure and gratification are different. Gratification is like that, that kind of sexual peak. I just want to get to an ejaculation as quickly as possible versus pleasure, which is a lot more... Mm full-bodied, a lot more surrendered, it's a lot more letting go, it's being in the moment, it's being a lot more present. So men focus on their their partner's perceived pleasure, right? Perceived being the um, operative word there, over their yeah. own pleasure. When I've said that before, people are like, what the hell are you talking about? What about the orgasm gap? What about men being selfish in bed? I'm like, yes, yes. And also the way that men are approaching sex is they want their partner to to orgasm. They're, they're trying to do the thing. They're trying to, you know, use the move that they know, the technique that they know to, you know, it's their responsibility. They feel like to give their partner an orgasm. And so there's this pressure that a lot of women feel to experience pleasure, to orgasm, because his ego is really wrapped up in that, right? His ego is wrapped up in mm. his performance mm-hmm. of sex and good sex looks like him doing a certain thing to make her, to make her orgasm. And, and because there's a lot of conditioning around women not speaking up, specifically sexually as well and tolerating what a lot of men are doing in the bedroom. A lot of women just feel like it's easier to fake and just satiate his ego, essentially satisfy that kind of performance mindset that he has rather than give open, honest, really vulnerable feedback. So this is a heterosexual situation. Does this also apply? Yeah, I've, I've, I've noticed that a lot in heterosexual situations, but it can also be applied. And this isn't my wheelhouse. So um, someone who yeah. maybe works with works with gay men might be able to uh, explain yeah. this a bit better, but I have noticed it. And I've spoken to a few, a few men who, who do work with gay men, that it is something else that is something that appears in, you know, homosexual relationships and, and right. We've still got this performance problem. Yeah. 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 So that's, that's like the, the biggest thing I think is, is really necessary to, to deconstruct and to rewrite is instead of focusing on performance, focusing on pleasure, you know, having a pleasure oriented rather than performance oriented mindset kind of looks like just having sex for the enjoyment of it and for the sake of exploring your body and exploring pleasure in your partner's body and having a bit of fun and making it playful and not being goal oriented, right? Performance orientation means we, you know, in order for sex to be successful, we've got to achieve something. We oftentimes have this mentality that like, 
that we've got to produce something, that it has to mean something and it has to be successful. And so, and so that looks like it has to, we have to include an ejaculation. We've got to include penetration. We've got to include an erect penis. We've got to include yeah, orgasms or yeah. as many orgasms as we can get from her. And so all of that creates this expectation of what sex quote unquote should look like. And when we don't meet that expectation, then it causes a lot of anxiety and, and concern. So if we can get out of that headspace and just say, what about if we just had sex for the enjoyment of it and just for feeling good and just for connecting with one another and to, um, to just explore our bodies. And that doesn't even have to involve penetration. It doesn't even have to involve ejaculation. It doesn't even have to involve orgasm. Then that's where I think we start to see a lot more positive sexual experiences. And, um, and so a very simple way that I give to the men and the couples that I work with is explore not ejaculating with your partner. Right. There's mm. a lot of unspoken symbolism around ejaculation that it's the peak of a man's sexual experience. The sticky white five second crotch sneeze is all the pleasure that he can experience. It's the end of sex for a lot of heterosexual couples. Once he's come, then sex is over. It's a signifier of like his, like his pleasure, like she's done a good job, made him come. Like yeah, it's, it's kind of a sign of successful sex and, and there's a little bit of self-worth wrapped up in that as well. So like all these stories can get challenged if you intentionally and mindfully make the decision with your partner to just take ejaculation off the table, you know, for a couple of weeks and notice what comes up for you in those sexual encounters with your partner. Now, if he's not ejaculating, do you get the story of like, oh, he didn't enjoy himself. He didn't come or I'm not hot enough. I didn't make him come. Or if you're a guy and you're not ejaculating, like, when is sex finished? When do we, when do we stop? Right. If I'm, if I'm not ejaculating, which is the signifier of the end of sex, like, what do I do now? What, what else can I focus on? Or, you know, if having penetrative sex for, for too long is, is making you feel like you are going to ejaculate, but you've made the decision not to, then you're going to have to stop that type of stimulation on your penis. And you'd have to focus on something else, maybe focusing on your partner or focusing on a different area of your body. So just having that intention to take ejaculation off the table and experiment with that can be a really powerful way and a really intentional way of challenging those stories that we have around the performance mindset of sex. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, let's talk about the kind of communication piece. So let's say I'm with a new lover or a relatively new lover and there are some things that are not working for me sexually. How do I talk about that? Do I talk about it? What should I do? Uh, you should definitely be talking about it. And I understand that it's a very vulnerable thing to do. I like to um, refer back to Brene Brown's definition of vulnerability here, which is risk-taking, emotional exposure, and uncertainty. And talking about your sexual desires as well as your boundaries is definitely a risky thing to do because- I'm you, not just um, saying about desires. I'm saying if you actively are like not enter something that somebody's doing, but it's like more of a style point, like how would you address that? Well, the first thing I suppose is having a conversation not in the heat of the moment, right? So mm. when you're about to have sex or when you're in the middle of sex, these are high stakes situations essentially is the way I, I refer to them. They're high pressure situations. So yeah. giving feedback, giving, you know, just voicing a boundary in those situations can be very confronting for a lot of people, um, not only to, to speak out loud on behalf of yourself, but also to hear. So there's a lot of ego and, and resistance to, to hearing those things in those situations. So first thing is to have a conversation in a non-sexual situation or a low stakes, low pressure situation. Like when you're going for a walk or when you're going for a drive or when you're having a cup of tea or when you're 
you know, when you're doing something together that is, and this is a tip, especially for women that want to talk to men about something, do something mm. physical with him. Go for a, go for a walk. Like that's, that's a, a really good strategy, but like go and just, if you're into hiking or if you're into rock climbing, like go and do a physical activity with him because that'll get him out of his head and more into his body. And it'll be a bit more receptive to hearing and also talking back to you as well, like having a, an open conversation. So that's the first strategy is if you want to talk about sex, do it in a non-sexual setting. If you're wanting to voice, this isn't working for me, like I need you to stop. Before you get to that in a sexual space, if you're not comfortable like saying that for a non-sexual thing, like if you're not comfortable saying, I actually don't like this when you leave a, an unwashed dish in the sink or whatever it is. Yeah. If that's difficult for you, then that's something you need to practice before getting to, uh, you know, talking about it sexually because you, you're, mm. it's, it's going to be really, really difficult to, to talk about your sexual boundaries. If you're not even comfortable kind of voicing a boundary, that's a lot less maybe. Volatile. Yeah. 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 So, so that's another thing as well. It's just, is, is practice, practice speaking into these things. Um, you can do that on a day-to-day basis. You know, it doesn't have to be, uh, a really intense boundary that you're asserting or, or you know, a, a intense feedback that you're giving. So that'd be something else I'd, I'd suggest is practice. And then look, if you are you know, feeling comfortable giving some feedback in the moment, right. And, and offering a bit more instruction and direction in the moment with your partner, which again is super valuable and super beneficial frame it in a, again, pleasure oriented kind of positively framed way. Instead of saying, you know, stop doing that. I fucking hate that. You know, that's shit essentially. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I love your, I love your enthusiasm, but yeah. Can we try, can we try this as well? Like I, I really want, I really think I, I would like this. Can we do this instead? Like, you know, can we shift uh, a little bit this way? Oh, do you mind if I change positions? There's ways of broaching that, which don't mm. bruise your partner's ego essentially. Right. Um, and um, that your partner might be a bit more receptive to one of the reasons why a lot of women don't speak up uh, and, and speak out against a particular technique or something that their partner's doing, a position or whatever, is because they're worried that if they speak out, that their partner will stop altogether. Um, and maybe they've, they've experienced that before where they've said they don't like something. And so their partner just went, a lot of men are very guilty of this, of just going, oh, well, fuck it then, fine. I won't do it. I won't do anything. And just having that overreaction. Yeah. So it's so like that's something for men to be mindful of as well is like, how do you receive feedback? Yeah, we know instinctually that men are, are susceptible. I mean, I guess all people are, but it, it feels like it goes very much with male sexuality that there's a the susceptible to to shaming. Yeah, uh, I know. There's like conversation here around like like coddling men's egos, and and you know, I, I, yeah, I, I know it's, um, it's tricky, so isn't it? Of, so part of me is just like, so part of me is just like, you know what? Just fucking tell him that he's shit, and and so. And some tough yeah. could be could be beneficial. I've I've heard that from men as well. That you know they had a sexual partner who said that was actually you know terrible sex. You need to learn, and that was a big wake up call for for some of the guys that I've worked with, and that's the reason why they came and started working with me. So you know there is that side of the coin as well. It's like a bit of tough love, tough feedback might necessarily be necessary. Well, it's also I think if we're talking about heterosexual couples here taking the the women's position, I think that women are sometimes resistant to stepping into the role of, of teacher. Mm. If you're having an experience sexually and you're not crazy about it, but you can imagine what might be better, then why not step into the role of teacher in that moment? It doesn't mean you're saying you're the ultimate sexual authority. 
Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I agree. And, and you know, that it's tough because you don't want to be, you don't want to set up a dynamic where you are your partner's coach, you know, like right. I, I see this with a lot yes. of, like a lot of women that have done a lot of really um, empowering, like sexually liberating work, but their male partners haven't because it, it's kind of, it, I guess, like a little bit more in at least the spirituality, sexuality space, it's a little bit more encouraged or um, yeah. accessible or approachable. I don't know what it is, but there's there's a lot more women in that space than there are men. So a lot of these um, mm-hmm. amazing women are doing this incredible work, but their partners aren't and are kind of lagging behind. And so these women who are wanting to experience a bit more pleasure and, and sexual exploration unwittingly or unknowingly step into the role of coaching their partner. And that sets up a really not just, that's not a great dynamic for you, for you and your partner, right? You want to be partners, not practitioner and client. Ah, is there any winning, Cam? Like, how do we, how do we win? Right. It's, it's to be mindful of like, okay, I'm, I'm going to intentionally put my coaching hat on right now and just coach you in this moment. And uh, then I'm going to take my coaching hat off. I'm going to put my partner hat back on and we're going to, you know, be partners again. <laughs> and, and, and even like saying yeah. something like that out loud is like, okay, you know, five minutes, I just want to like educate you for, for five minutes and, um, yeah. and then yeah. you know, get back yeah. into it. Right. That can be a really powerful tool of just cutting, like just naming that. I like that bite-sized coaching. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. And I, I'm glad you used the hat uh, metaphor. I'm always thinking about taking on and off different hats. I think mm-hmm. as you as you get older, there are more more hats to wear as you have more different kinds of relationships, right? Totally. Oh, this is such good stuff. I'm, I'm so delighted to have this conversation with you. I, I love how educated and educating you are on uh, male sexuality. Can we clone you? Um, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I I really appreciate you you saying that. And, um, but, um, my, I guess my, my thinking is, and my my approach is like just speaking to to dudes in like a really approachable and accessible way. Like my, I used to look the part in terms of like the spiritual kind of teacher, long hair and, you know, bushy beard and mala beads and flowing shirts and, and teaching, you know, tantra yoga workshops. And and it, it was great. But like, if I wanted to reach men and talk to men about, and just like regular dudes, like the guys that are in the spiritual space, they're already on the path. They already know, like, you know, they're familiar with the work and, and, you know, there's people out there that are talking to them. Just regular fellas, like guys that have maybe a, you know, a corporate business job. They don't even think about, you know, pleasure and performance. They just kind of go through the motions. Like they're the types of guys that I really want to try and reach. You know, I like that. I, I like straight talk personally. And I, I, I'm i a bridge character myself. I'm sort of between the, the woo-woo and the, the established. I don't want to ever identify too hard with any any camp. But um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I like that. Accessible is good. Go, go If you can, go straight into the, the heart of the mainstream. That's where there's a lot of dead weight. There's a lot of, of energy that could use some shifting. And yeah, I love that. There, I love that you have all these clients. I love that you have all these men coming to you wanting to to learn and and wake up. And that that level of, of receptivity is a beautiful thing, in my opinion. So let me ask you two questions to to wrap up. Sure. One is your greatest challenge in your work, and the last question is your greatest hope for your work mm. and its impact. I guess my answer to these questions is the same. My greatest challenge is getting men to reach out to me and to to follow and to engage with my work. I can fill out a room of 
women who are really interested in learning about male sexuality and men's pleasure. But to get men to come to a workshop like that is just the bane of my <laughs> bane of my profession. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But on the flip side of that, my greatest hope is particularly in you know the times of COVID, more you know, more men are at home with their partners, having more sex, being more intimate and realizing, holy shit, I don't really know what I'm doing. I need some help here. And so I, and so I see more men reaching out. It's been you know, very fortuitous for a lot of, a lot of guys this, during this, you know, weird tumultuous time of their lives that they want to do something about their relationship and, and particularly their sex lives. So I guess my hope is that this encourages more men to um, to reach out. As more men, you know, reach out, that kind of has a has a blossom effect, like this kind of knock on effect to other men in their lives. As as they see these guys kind of doing the work and mm-hmm. changing their relationships mm-hmm. and showing up as men, and um, and again, like referring to that microcosmic kind of affecting the macrocosm. That's what I kind of hope for. Is is that this has a really beautiful snowball effect. Mm, I was just thinking about that and how shame has this, you know, there's the shame of the individual and then there's the collective cloud of shame and how, you know, with with each individual, as you start to kind of chip away at the shame or clear the shame, then, you know, the collective cloud lightens. So yay for your work and uh, yeah, join you in your in your hopes and your dreams and hey, come to LA. We need you out here. So come out. I'd love to. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for using your platform to, to have conversations like this. I'm really, feel really grateful and really humbled. Oh, you're so kind. Thank you, Cam. Well, stay in touch. I certainly will. Yeah. All right. Bye, dear. Bye. Cam raised an interesting question about whether or not we should be coddling the male ego in sex talk. I don't think we should be coddling. That said, kindness is never a bad thing especially when it comes to vulnerable situations. So is it kind? Is it true? Is it kind? Is it true? Is it kind? Is it true? That's the sweet spot. That's the the G spot of, of human interaction and communication. And it seems like that's a, a really big part of this sex map, as well as understanding that people are coming from really different places when it comes to sex. So we might as well ask each other where we are coming from and learn something about it. I vow to be braver and put on my sex coach hat next time I'm having sex and I want something different. And then I also promise I will take off my sex coach hat. Not that I'm a sex coach. I'm just a woman who has a few things that she wants and doesn't want, okay? What do you want more of and less of? Where lies your pleasure moving forwards? Pleasure. Catch you for the next one.